A number of years ago, I was in Atlanta, Georgia, as an attorney representing a man who was buying a business. After several days of negotiations, we reached an agreement and signed the closing documents. That evening, one of the sellers invited us to a dinner to celebrate the closing. When I arrived, he offered me an alcoholic drink, which I declined. He then said, Are you a saint? I didn't fully understand what he meant, and he repeated, Are you a Latter-day Saint? I responded, Yes, I am. And he said he had been observing my personal habits during our negotiations and had concluded that I was either LDS or had a stomach problem. (laughs) He then informed me that he had only known one member of the Church on a personal basis, David B. Haight. They were both executives in Chicago with a large retail chain following World War II. He told me of the significant influence Elder Haight had been in his life and that he held him in the highest regard. As I flew back home to San Francisco, I thought about what had occurred, especially in two respects. I was surprised at how it felt to be asked if I was a saint and I was impressed with the positive influence one outstanding example, Elder Haight, had on this good man. What does it mean to be a saint? In the Lord's Church, the members are Latter-day Saints, and they attempt to emulate the Savior, follow His teachings, and receive saving ordinances in order to live in the celestial kingdom with God the Father and our Savior Jesus Christ. The Savior said, This is my gospel. And ye know the things that ye must do in my church. For the works which ye have seen me do, that shall ye also do. It is not easy to be a Latter-day Saint. It was not meant to be easy. The ultimate goal of living in the presence of God the Father and His Son Jesus Christ is a privilege almost beyond comprehension. Among the greatest trials the Church has ever faced was the martyrdom of the Prophet Joseph Smith and then ultimately the expulsion of the Saints from Nauvoo. When they were making their way across the plains under very adverse circumstances, William Clayton penned the great hymn, Come, Come, Ye Saints. It was a hymn that stirred their souls and helped them remember their sacred mission. Who among us does not become emotional as we feel their sacrifice, courage, and commitment when we sing, And Should We Die Before Our Journey's Through? Happy day, all is well. This hymn gave them comfort, solace, and hope in a time of great difficulty with almost insurmountable obstacles. It buoyed them up and highlighted the fact that this mortal life is a journey between pre-existent life and eternal life to come, the great plan of happiness. Brother Clayton's inspiring hymn emphasizes sacrifices and what it really means to be a saint. Our pioneer members met the challenge of their day to be saints. The word saint in Greek denotes set apart, separate, and holy. If we are to be saints in our day, we need to separate ourselves from evil conduct 
and destructive pursuits that are prevalent in the world. We are bombarded with visual images of violence and immorality. Inappropriate music and pornography are increasingly tolerated. The use of drugs and alcohol is rampant. There is less emphasis on honesty and character. Individual rights are demanded, but duties, responsibilities, and obligations are neglected. There has been a coarsening of dialogue and increased exposure to that which is base and vulgar. The adversary has been relentless in his efforts to undermine the plan of happiness. If we separate ourselves from this worldly conduct, we will have the Spirit in our lives and experience the joy of being worthy Latter-day Saints. As Saints, we also need to avoid the worship of worldly gods. President Hinckley has expressed the desire that everyone might have some of the good things of life, but has cautioned. It is the obsession with riches that cankers and destroys. In 1630, John Winthrop set forth a vision for the new land, America, on behalf of his fellow passengers as he sailed on board the Arbella. It has become known as the City Upon a Hill Sermon. In the final paragraph, Winthrop references Deuteronomy 30 and warns against worshiping and serving other gods and emphasizes pleasure and profits. In the recent past, President Kimball counseled that even homes, boats, credentials, titles, and other similar pursuits can be worshiped as idols when they entice us away from love and service to God. The prophet Moroni, speaking of our day, warned about the love of money and substance and suggested that we would love them more than we love the poor and the needy, the sick, and the afflicted. If we are to be worthy saints, we should minister to others and adhere to the Savior's admonition to love God and our fellow men. Separation from the evils of the world needs to be accompanied by holiness. A saint loves the Savior and follows Him in holiness and devotion. Evidence of this kind of holiness and devotion is exemplified by consecration and sacrifice. President Hinckley has taught, Without sacrifice, there is no true worship of God. Sacrifice is the crowning test of the gospel. It means consecrating time, talents, energy, and earthly possessions to further the work of God. In Doctrine and Covenants 97, verse 8, it concludes, all who are willing to observe their covenants by sacrifice, yea, every sacrifice which I, the Lord, shall command, they are accepted of me. Saints who respond to the Savior's message will not be led astray by distracting and destructive pursuits and will be prepared to make appropriate sacrifices. The importance of sacrifice to those who want to be saints is exemplified by the atoning sacrifice of the Savior, which is at the center of the gospel. Coming back to the original question that my acquaintance in Atlanta asked, Are you a saint? May I suggest three questions that will allow for a self-assessment? First, is the way we live consistent with what we believe? And would our friends and associates recognize, as Elder Haight's friend did, that we have separated ourselves 
from worldly evils? Second, are worldly pleasures, profits, and similar pursuits distracting us from following, worshiping, and serving the Savior in our daily lives? And third, in order to serve God and be holy, are we making sacrifices consistent with our covenants? What a wonderful blessing it is to be a Latter-day Saint. I love the words in the last two lines of the hymn, O Saints of Zion. O Saints of Zion, tread the paths your faithful fathers trod. Lift up your hearts in gratitude and serve the living God. I testify that avoiding evil and destructive pursuits and sacrificing in order to serve will qualify us to experience the joy of being committed Latter-day Saints and, as the scriptures promise, bring peace in this world and eternal life in the world to come. In the name of Jesus Christ, amen. What a glorious time we've had, my brothers and sisters. It's been a truly wonderful thing to step out of the world, as it were, and set aside two days to reflect on things divine. We're all so busy with our mundane pursuits which pull us this way and that. We all need, the whole world needs, the opportunity to meditate and reflect on the things of God and listen to words that inspire and help. Our testimonies have been strengthened. And that is good, for as presently once said, our testimonies need to be renewed every day. I am satisfied that the Latter-day Saints have within their hearts a desire to do the right thing, to live after the manner which the Lord has outlined for us. We have been reminded of many of these things during this conference. I hope that when we return to our homes, before retiring for the night, we will each get on our knees and express our appreciation and ask for the strength to live the gospel more fully as a result of this conference. I am so grateful for the beautiful music of the choir. They have sung so wonderfully. This is such a great and dedicated organization, and we thank all who give so generously of their time and talents to this great effort. I'm grateful for the music yesterday of the Singles Choir. They were an inspiration. And the great singing last night of the young men in the Missionary Training Center who came and sang to us with great power. Thank you so very much for what you have given us. Now I'd like to read, in conclusion, just a few words from Moroni. And awake and arise. From the dust, O Jerusalem, yea, and put on thy beautiful garments, O daughter of Zion, and strengthen thy stakes, and enlarge thy borders forever. 
that thou mayest no more be confounded, that the covenants of the Eternal Father, which he hath made unto thee, O house of Israel, may be fulfilled. Yea, come unto Christ and be perfected in him, and deny yourselves of all ungodliness. And if ye shall deny yourselves of all ungodliness, and love God with all your might, mind, and strength, then is his grace sufficient for you, that by his grace ye may be perfect in Christ. And if by the grace of God ye are perfect in Christ, he can in no wise deny the power of Christ. As a result of this great conference, each of us should be a better man or a better woman, a better boy or a better girl. Thank you so much, my brothers and sisters, for your great service in moving this work forward. What a tremendous work you are doing. You faithful Latter-day Saints all across the world who carry in your hearts a firm and unswerving testimony of the reality of the living God and of the Lord Jesus Christ, our Savior and our Redeemer, and of their appearance in this dispensation to begin anew a great era in the history of the world in preparation for that time when the Son of God shall come to reign as Lord of Lords and King of Kings. May the blessings of heaven rest upon you. My dear friends, I pray that what you have heard and seen may make a difference in your lives. I pray that each of us will be a little more kind, a little more thoughtful, a little more courteous. I pray that we will keep our tongues in check and not let anger prompt words which we would later regret. I pray that we may have the strength and the will to turn the other cheek, to walk the extra mile in lifting up the feeble knees of those in distress. This gospel is an intimate thing. It is not some distant concept. It is applicable in our lives. It can change our very natures. May God bless you, my wonderful, faithful associates, in this great work. May his peace and his love be upon you and enshrine your lives with an essence of godliness. As we return to our homes, I pray that in our hearts there will be a resolution to live together more fully as we should do as Latter-day Saints. I leave my love and my blessings with you in the sacred name of the Lord Jesus Christ. God be with you till we meet again. Thank you and amen. 
from 1820 on, Joseph Smith was steadily attacked in a pattern of accusations followed by eventual vindications. The pattern continues. Justice prophesied, fools deride him. Hell rages against him, and his name is both good and evil spoken of. The swirl needlessly preoccupies a few who seem to prefer chewing on old bones in the outer courtyard instead of coming inside to the resplendent revelatory banquet, thus diverting them from giving due attention to Joseph's mission as a choice seer. As Ammon taught, a seer has the power to translate ancient records. A seer is greater than a prophet, he said. But Ammon also said, a seer is a prophet also. Thus called, Joseph has become a great benefit to his fellow beings. The choice translator brought forth by the gift and power of God, the Book of Mormon, something tangible, testifiable, and verifiable. For all who heed it, the Book of Mormon is like the flinging open of long closed doors on what was assumed to be a complete canon of Scripture. Note on the very title page of the Book of Mormon is the book's special role in convincing mortals that Jesus is the Christ. In a day of disbelief and equivocation regarding this preeminent fact, this convincing effect is so needed. How sharp-edged that promise! The Book of Mormon will be read upon the housetops. Even if neglected, it will constitute a lingering invitation for as long as the earth shall stand. No wonder the ends of the earth shall inquire after Joseph's name. Reassuring prophecies further declare that Joseph's enemies shall be confounded and reassure us that the prophet's people will not be turned against him by the testimony of traitors. As President Faust reminded us yesterday of his own imperfections, Joseph said, I never told you I was perfect, but there is no error in the revelations which I have taught. Ironically, young Joseph went into the grove merely wanting to know which church to join, not seeking to be called as a seer, revelator, and translator and prophet. In the grove and subsequently, there came sunbursts of serendipity. The resulting revelations and translations were not mere speculations, thoughts for the day, or even epigrams, but instead they were divine declarative disclosures. The volume of resulting revelations and translations is enormous underscoring the words choice seer. But it isn't just the volume of what Joseph received, which is now being shared with mankind. It is also the existence of stunners in the midst of such abundance. Through multiple revelations and translations, for example, came a description of a universe far, far exceeding the astrophysics of the 1830s a cosmos containing worlds without number, 
and further advising us that the inhabitants thereof are begotten sons and daughters of God. Anciently, the vastness of Abraham's eventual posterity was compared to the sand of the sea, a staggering promise. The restorations, revelations, and translations accommodate a vast universe. Thus, it is no surprise to us that scientists' latest estimate of the number of stars in the universe is approximately 70 sextillion. More stars in the sky, scientists say, than there are grains of sand in every beach and on every desert on earth. Revelations and translations also came regarding God's central purpose to bring to pass the immortality and eternal life of man, giving us divine succinctness and reassurances. God's plans for the development of souls have not changed. They were described to ancient Israel, whose forty years in the wilderness were to humble thee, to prove thee, and to know what was in thine heart, whether thou wouldest keep his commandments or no. Therefore, disciples today can understand why our faith and patience are tried at times, so that we can be prepared to go home. Brothers and sisters, we do not go many hours in our lives without having to decide again which way do we face and whether we will pitch our tents facing Sodom or the Holy Temple. God has no distracting hobbies off somewhere in the universe. We are at the very center of His concerns and purposes. What a sharp contrast to those who believe that man lives in an unsponsored universe without a master. Revelations likewise came about our longevity as God's spirit children, since man was also in the beginning with God. A declaration accompanied by even further glimmers about man's eternal nature. These enunciations with their profound implications, are major, challenging, for instance, the teaching that man was created in an instant out of nothing. A further reality of our being with God in the beginning means that you have been you for a long time. Hence, the Apostle John correctly wrote that God first loved us. Likewise, amid the mortal turbulence, we learn who other mortals really are. They are spiritual brothers and sisters, not functions, rivals, or even enemies. Moreover, we should have a special sanctity and regard for human life. Stunners all, these three revelations and translations are especially responsive to the deepest human yearnings and puzzlements. They restructure our understanding of the nature of God, of the universe, and likewise of our own personal identity and of life's meaning. What could be more personal than these brief but encompassing declarations? 
if Joseph Smith had been the conduit for only one such divine revelation, it would be, standing alone, sufficient to ensure his prophetic greatness. Yet, even though God wants to give us all that he hath, we suffer from a poverty of perceptions. Little wonder that Paul commended Abraham, who, quote, staggered not in disbelief, end of quote. There's a risk when we contemplate the doctrines of the Restoration that we might stagger in the face of such bold and promising truths. Given such breathtaking revelations and translations, let us therefore heed King Benjamin's counsel. Quote, Believe in God. Believe that man doth not comprehend all the things that God comprehends, end quote. An omnicompetent God leaves all mortals free to choose. But how grateful we should be that God chose long, long ago to rescue and to resurrect all his children through the atonement of his Son. Nevertheless, some reject, and many are indifferent to these and other divine beckonings, mostly because they're too caught up in the cares of the world. They are strangers to the Savior, who is far from the thoughts and intents of their heart. In the midst of God's plan and the universe's incredible vastness is incredible personalness. For example, God looketh down upon all the children of men, and he knows the thoughts and intents of the heart. Since we are thus fully accountable to him, on Judgment Day we cannot invoke the Fifth Amendment. I have saved for last the preeminent revelation that truly ranks first, the theophany showing the reality of a resurrected Jesus who was our Savior. Beginning with the sacred grove and other confirming appearances soon followed in obscure locations like Kirtland and Hiram, and all mankind thereby received this desperately needed confirmation. Alas, in a secular world, Jesus is regarded by many, at best, as a distant figure. He is even denigrated. How transcendingly special, therefore, that the revelations of the Restoration confirm this cosmic fact. God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son. Jesus, who performed the infinite atonement, thereby suffered infinitely and is a fully comprehending Savior having descended below all things and comprehending all things. Yes, as in the lyrics of the moving spiritual of yesteryear, nobody knows the troubles I've seen. Nobody knows but Jesus. Brothers and sisters, the cast of players on this planet for whom the revelations and translations are so pertinent include those 
in that familiar phrase, who are living lives of quiet desperation. They have now been joined by those living lives of noisy, slurping indulgence, wrongly celebrating their capacity to feel so that they finally lose their capacity to feel and become past feeling. Hence, they lick their particular platters in a desperate search for more sensations. Such individuals, however, are are still not a majority, but a lesser part of the people. Notably, at the last day, the adversary will not support those who followed him anyway. He cannot. Jesus will triumph majestically, and the adversary's clever constructs, pleasing to the carnal mind, will also collapse, and the fall thereof will be exceedingly great. Even now, one can see in the lives of the prodigals who come to themselves the devil's doctrines dripping in early meltdown. Many, having experienced the utter emptiness of the lower ways, are in a preparation to hear the word and now await being informed of the rescuing revelations and translations. Brothers and sisters, we dare not hold back the restored gospel's declaratives. We dare not hold back the reassuring revelations and truth-telling translations about things as they really are and things as they really will be. These are so needed by those whose weary hands hang down because they suffer from doctrinal anemia, which can best be treated by the red blood cells of the Restoration. To hold back would be to restrain repentance and to obscure the beckoning spiritual alternative, which will become fair as the moon, fair as the sun, and clear as the moon. Meanwhile, let us expect that many will regard us indifferently. Others will see us as quaint or misled. Let us bear the pointing fingers, too, which ironically belong to those being bored who finally find the great and spacious building to be a stale and cramped third-class hotel. Let us revile not the revilers and heed them not. Instead, let us use our energy to hold up the shield of faith to quench the incoming fiery darts, aided perhaps by a touch of spiritual Teflon. Brothers and sisters, given all of the foregoing, what can I say more except praise to the man who communed with Jehovah in the name of Jesus Christ? Amen. Some time ago, in my high priest core meeting, the instructor introduced the lesson by asking each of us to respond to who our hero is and why. As each member took his turn responding, the answers were not unexpected. 
Of course, someone named the Savior the Redeemer of the world. Another spoke of Abraham Lincoln, who freed the slaves, led the United States through a civil war, and eventually unified the country. Others chose the prophet Joseph Smith and our beloved current prophet, Gordon B. Hinckley. As each named a hero, I silently concurred and acknowledged that all were worthy men, emulating and worthy of emulating, and that I would be a better person if I possessed some of the qualities that made those men great. When my turn came to respond, I turned to a brother on my right, a few seats down the row from me, and I said, My hero is Ken Sweatfield and his wife Joanne. For twenty years I watched Ken and Joanne care for their comatose son with all of the love and patience a parent could possibly give. I had often pondered the shattered hopes and dreams they surely had for Shane before he suffered a terrible automobile accident just two weeks before he was to begin his mission in Leeds, England. I have watched Ken and Joanne wheel Shane into the sunlight or push him through the neighborhood describing the scenery, hoping that he might hear and feel and hoping that the fresh air and sunlight might lighten a very subdued spirit. For twenty years there were no vacations from this care, few evenings out, but there was always a spirit of faith, optimism, and gratitude. Never a show of anger, despair, or questioning of God's purpose. I then turned to a brother on my left and said, My hero is Jim Newton and his wife, Helen. Shortly after Jim and Helen's son, Zach, received his mission call to Peru, he was taken in an automobile accident. When I heard of the accident, I rushed to the hospital, hoping to hear that Zach was alive and would recover. The parents, in a most dignified and peaceful manner, explained that Zach would now be serving his mission on the other side of the veil. As I witnessed the calm resolve of these two strong parents, I realized that through the pain and anguish there was a peace that could only come through a deep and abiding faith in a loving Father and an atoning Savior. My faith was strengthened, and through their inspiration, my resolve to follow their example in meeting similar trials and tragedies was reaffirmed. I could have also answered that my hero is Tom Abbott and his son John, my faithful home teachers, who never missed a home teaching assignment, even though we are often a difficult family to catch at home. I could have named dozens of others that I admire and could call my heroes. Many do not hold so-called high or prominent callings in the Church, but all are worthy to hold any position. None are widely known to the general membership of the Church, but all, I am certain, are known by name to our Heavenly Father. On the occasion that I am able to attend sacrament meeting in my own ward, I am often reflective as I look down in the congregation and I see the same faces Sunday after Sunday. Some I have regularly seen in sacrament meeting for more than twenty years. Again, most are not in the limelight of the Church, but all consistently attend their meetings 
and privately meet life's challenges. These are the many members I see, admire, and am grateful for. They are not seeking position, prominence, or fame, but each is earning a place in our Father's kingdom by taking care of the business of everyday living. They are consistently doing the unnoticed, the unspectacular, but humbly and righteously doing the important. Challenges they have, but out of their bitter struggles they are able to find the sweetness that is so often the silent companion to adversity. This picture is duplicated hundreds of times in thousands of wards throughout the world. They are the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. Yes, the strength of the Church is in the millions of humble members striving every day to do the will of the Savior, day by day, one step at a time. These humble members come from all nationalities, all social strata, and every economic background. They include those of the highest educational backgrounds, as well as those of the humblest who live in the smallest hamlets in the most remote areas of the world, each having hearts throbbing with a vital testimony of Jesus Christ and a desire to serve the Lord. As I have pondered these faithful members, I am struck by two qualities they all seem to have. First, regardless of social or economic status or position, their humility leads to submissiveness to the Lord's will. And second, in spite of the difficulties and trials of life, they are able to maintain a sense of gratitude for God's blessings and life's goodness. Humility and gratitude are the true twin characteristics of happiness. A story is told of an encounter between the Prophet Joseph Smith and Brigham Young. In the presence of a rather large group of brethren, the Prophet severely chastised Brother Brigham for some failing in his duty. I suppose somewhat st everyone was somewhat stunned, and they waited to see what Brigham's response would be. After all, Brigham, who later became known as the Lion of the Lord, was no shrinking violet by any means. Brigham slowly rose to his feet and, in words that truly reflected his character and his humility, he simply bowed his head and said, Joseph, what do you want me to do? The story goes that, in a sobbing way, Joseph ran from the podium, threw his arms around Brigham, and said, in effect, You passed, Brother Brigham, you passed. Many of us live or work in an environment where humility is often misunderstood and considered a weakness. Not many corporations or institutions include humility as a value statement or a desired characteristic of their management. Yet as we learn about the workings of God, the power of a humble and submissive spirit becomes apparent. In the kingdom of God, Greatness begins with humility and submissiveness. 
These companion virtues are the first critical steps to opening the doors to the blessings of God and the power of the priesthood. It matters not who we are or how lofty our credentials. Humility and submissiveness to the Lord, coupled with a grateful heart, are the strength and our hope. In giving the requirements for membership in His Church, the Lord stated, quote, All those that humble themselves before God and come forth with broken hearts and contrast spirits, these, these are the ones who shall be received by baptism into His Church. And so within the membership of the Church we see men and women of all backgrounds humbly submitting to the counsel of God. We see the prominent business executive graciously and humbly receiving and being taught by a humble, sometimes even intimidated, home teacher. We see the highly educated humbly following the counsels from their bishops who sometimes have little or formal education. We see former bishops and stake presidents graciously and humbly accepting calls to teach in the primary, assist in the nursery, or assemble humanitarian kits to be sent to the needy throughout the world. We see thousands of mature couples leaving their comfortable homes to live in circumstances to which they are not accustomed to humbly serving the poverty-stricken throughout the world, and then serve again and again and again. We see the poverty-stricken in the world humbly sacrificing to share their meager substance of life with those who are even more destitute, and each in their humility are serving and giving with a grateful heart and giving praise to God. King Benjamin warned that we must become as a child submissive, meek, humble, patient, full of love, willing to submit all things which the Lord seeth fit to inflict upon us. Humbly submitting our will to the Father brings us the empowerment of God, the power of humility. It is the power to meet life's adversities the power of peace, the power of hope, the power of a heart throbbing with a love for the testimony of the Savior Jesus Christ, even the power of the redemption. To this end, the Savior is our supreme example of the power of humility and submissiveness. After all, His submitting His will to the Father brought about the greatest and even the most powerful event in all of the history. Perhaps some of the most sacred words in all the scriptures are simply not my will, but thine be done. So we have the thousands of millions of throbbing hearts. Here, as I suspect we could say, but perhaps a more appropriate description is merely humble followers of the Savior, Jesus Christ. And as President Hinckley has asked of each of us, they are just doing their best, one day at a time. 
May a humble and submissive heart be our empowerment from God. With all of its intended and blessings is my humble prayer. In the name of Jesus Christ, amen.